Folks, JFK, we're going to be talking about a new book by a, a new author, his very first book. His name's Brent Holland. Wait a second now. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what happened. We had Bill Simpich lined up to come on the show tonight. And I think Bill, like most West Coast, Coast folks, um, get a little bit confused. That could be him now, folks, at the time zone. Just give me a second. All right, folks, stick with me through this. Um, I'm going to give a fellow by the name of Jim Lazar a phone call right now and uh, see if he can come on the air as well. Here we go. Dun, da, da. Don't you love this live radio? You live by the seat of your pants. You fly by the seat of your pants, don't you, folks? It's really wild. I'm typing in the number now, and we'll see what happens. Look what is with these West Coast guys. <laughs> they get all confused. <laughs> oh, God. There we go. Let's see if we can get him. Oh? Hi, Jim. Yes. Hi, it's Brent Holland calling. How are you, my friend? Okay. Good. Jim, um, I'm, we're talking live on the air right now. You're on the show called Night Fright Broadcasting Canada, but it's also broadcast right around the world. Jim, I was wondering if we could set up the new conference that's coming up in Washington, D.C., and you can give us a little bit of background about that. It's all about JFK and the assassination, and some heavy hitter researchers are going to be there. Could you give us a synopsis? Uh, yes. Well, the, uh, uh, the conference is on the 50th anniversary of the Warren Report, um, uh, five days of uh, significant disclosures. So it will go into uh, the important um, developments which have happened since the Warren Report was issued um, and uh, give people an idea of um, where the research has gone, what it, what it has uh, accomplished, uh, where we're at now in terms of understanding a uh, pivotal event in American history. What are the dates of the conference? It will be held September 26 to 28, uh, 2014, at the Bethesda Hyatt Regency Hotel in Bethesda, Maryland, which is just outside the District of Columbia. Right. -o. And um, if people wanted to order tickets, is there a website online they could go to? There is a, a, a website which is aarclibrary.org. Uh, okay, and folks, just to let you know, I will be putting that link onto the Night Fright website uh, associated with tonight's show, and you can just click on that, and if you're interested in going, you can just buy the tickets now. Jerry Lazar, of course, is a, a world-famous researcher in his own right. Jerry, what got you? Okay. Jim Lazar. Jim Lazar, I'm sorry. I was thinking of Jerry Polakoff, of course. <laughs> Jim, what got you into the JFK assassination? Well, I was a student at, uh, a graduate student in history at the University of Illinois. Uh, when President Kennedy was assassinated, I had been a political activist and uh, the day that he was assassinated, I was actually at 
between noon and one o'clock, I was in front of the um, administration building on campus in a free speech demonstration. I left that demonstration and went to uh, my one o'clock uh, American history class and got the news that Kennedy had been assassinated. And what led you to go into research? Well, I had uh, I, I thought that it was a, a and just an extremely important uh, event uh, in American history, and um, the, I I was at the time um, the Vietnam War had uh, just started uh, in in a sense it was had, had become uh, active and got much more active very soon after Kennedy was assassinated. And uh, I was, uh, I think, the first student on the University of Illinois campus to give a speech against the Vietnam War, which I did before Kennedy was assassinated. Um, and then um, <clears throat> I... I um, uh, had was later uh, drafted into the army myself, and I, while I was in the army, I became, um, uh, I followed the uh, developing literature on the Kennedy assassination, and uh, 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 when I got out of the army and went to the University of Wisconsin Law School, uh, I founded a. a a uh, chapter of an uh, of an organization to uh, uh, study the Kennedy assassination. So I was uh, interested in it from the beginning. And then when I graduated from the University of Wisconsin Law School, the year after I graduated, uh, uh, my wife was finishing up her residency in radiology at the University of Wisconsin and uh, got a job in Washington, D.C., and I uh, read that uh, Bernard Fensterwald, uh, Jr., uh, a prominent Washington, D.C. attorney, was opening up a, an organization, the Committee to Investigate Assassinations, so um, I volunteered to work for that organization, um, and that's uh, at that point I, I really became deeply involved in not only the JFK assassination but um, other political assassinations, uh, particularly the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, because I became, for a period of five years, I was. Uh, attorney for James Earl Ray trying to get him the trial that he never got. And then uh, I got involved uh, uh, through Bud Fensterwald, who had been a uh, had been the author of the Freedom of Information Act, which he he drafted while he was a uh, uh, an aide to uh, a Senate committee. Um, uh, uh, through him, I got involved in Freedom of Information Act litigation, and uh, that's basically what I spent the next 45 years doing, 
was to uh, in litigating Freedom of Information Act cases, many of which deal with uh, political assassinations, particularly the, the JFK assassination. Another heavy hitter for us tonight, folks, his name is Jim Lazar. We're talking about his his investigations into the assassinations, uh, primarily the JFK assassination and, and Martin Luther King. We're going to get there in just a second. I just want to tell you where you can get his information, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click there on tonight's guest picture, and that will take you right to the AARC website where you can find out more information about the upcoming conference on JFK that is going to be taking place September 26th through to September 28th in D.C., just outside of D.C. in Bethesda, Maryland. And uh, all the, uh, the the costing and everything is there. Um, Jim, just can you just tell us a few of the people that have been invited to speak? I know you'll be speaking. Uh, well, um, the uh, I think, uh, first of all, John Newman uh, will be speaking. And he is the uh, uh, he's a very prominent uh, uh, author on the uh, subject of the Kennedy assassination. He wrote a book called Oswald in and the CIA. Um, a, he's a former uh, uh, major in Army intelligence and a professor of political science and a yoga expert. And um, he, uh, in 2000, the 2006 paperback edition of Oswald and the CIA, um, had a new chapter which um, uh, showed that his research indicated that uh, James Jesus Angleton, the CIA's head of counterintelligence, had uh, been involved in the assassination of President Kennedy. He is uh, uh, going to he had, he had dropped out of the um, uh, research uh, uh, community in a sense after publication of the the 2006 edition of Oswald and the CIA, but he is now going to launch a series of books, um, including one that will be published probably early next spring. Um, and he's going to, to talk at the conference and uh, give an indication of um, some of what his uh, uh, research has indicated. I think it will be uh, an extremely uh, important uh, speech. Um, secondly, um, Dan Hardway will be talking. Dan Hardway uh, was a top investigator for the House Select Committee on Assassinations, which investigated the assassination between 1976 and 1978. Um, uh, he had... Um, Can I just tell folks that was the HSCA and it was designed... That they simply had to do something, and they decided to investigate the JFK assassination, also the Martin Luther King assassination, and who was the third one? There's the governor of. Um, oh, no, the, those were the only two that were the focus of the um, the House Select Committee investigation. I thought there was a third one, the governor who was shot, Wallace. 
Uh, Governor Wallace, no, that was not a subject of the uh, of the HSCA investigation. Okay. But in both cases, I should tell folks, the Martin Luther King and JFK, their conclusions were the same, that there was a better than 50-50 chance that it was a conspiracy in both cases. So that's a government report that's out there. And why the mainstream doesn't cover that, I don't know. But obviously this conference will be talking about that and the Warren Commission, which was that report, folks, if you're unaware, that came out investigating all the supposed to have investigated all the connections in the JFK assassination in 1964. I'm going to go back to Jim Lazar now. Jim, um, you were about to tell us about Dan Hardway. Yes, well, um, uh, he uh, he was, uh, uh, say, a prominent investigator. He uh, uh, interviewed David Phillips uh, for the House Select Committee, um, and David Phillips was a uh, a suspect uh, uh, for involvement in the in the assassination of President Kennedy. Dan Hardway um, uh, interviewed him uh, under oath, and uh, he will be reporting on that at this at this conference. Um, a third. Uh, person of note who will be at the conference is uh, Jefferson Morley. Mm-hmm. Jefferson Morley is a, is a Washington journalist um, who um, uh, has written a number of um, acclaimed books. He is, um, he, he is at present hosting uh, the JFK Facts blog which uh, is doing an excellent job of reporting on uh, news about the assassination of President Kennedy. Um, he is also the uh, person who has uh, uh, discovered the um, uh, who the CIA case officer was who was handling the DRE, uh, the DRE, or Directorio Revolucionario Estudantil, Cuban Student Directorate, was a Cuban exile organization that had been founded by David Phillips and uh, was uh, funded and led by the CIA. And it during the period that Oswald was active in New Orleans, the uh, he had he was associated with members of the DRE. That led Congress when the HSCA began to investigate uh, the assassination of President Kennedy to make inquiries about who the CIA's case officer had been and what the relationship between Oswald and the DRE was. They never found out because the CIA brought out of retirement George Joannides, a CIA officer who actually had been the CIA case officer in charge of the DRE. He didn't tell 
Congress that he had been the DRE's case officer, hmm. and he didn't respond to in their inquiries for information about the relationship between Oswald and the CIA. What this means to me is that the last official investigation into the assassination of President Kennedy was corrupted by an agency that itself was under investigation in connection with that crime, the CIA. This is one of the major revelations that has occurred since the Warren Report was issued. We now know that the CIA undermined a, a congressional investigation, essentially doing the same thing that it, it has now admitted to doing with the investigation of the Senate Intelligence Committee into allegations of torture by the CIA. So we have now a history of an agency that is undermining the most fundamental premise of democracy, which is the democratic accountability oversight function exercised by congressional oversight committees. That has been totally undermined by the CIA. So the same mythology, or not mythology, mythology that was taken place in those days in the 1960s, the 50s, that still runs true to today. It doesn't matter who's in charge. It just seems that the CIA runs its own little sub-country, if you will. The, the implications are very unsettling, and the problems continue today. In 1992, Congress um, voted unanimously to, for the prompt release of all records related to the assassination of President Kennedy. And now we face a situation in which there are still thousands of records related to the assassination of President Kennedy are being with, that are being withheld by the National Archives at the behest of the CIA. The National Archives is not acting as an independent agency. It is acting as subservient to the wishes of the CIA in withholding records um, pertaining to the assassination of President Kennedy. Just speculation, uh, Jim, but what do you feel that those hidden records, the ones that are being shoved away in the shadows, if you will. What do you think? Do you think there's any revelations there yet to come? Well, I don't, uh, I, I'm not going to speculate as to what the revelations would, might be. I don't know what they might be, but I would say that we know that, um, that the records that are being withheld um, relate to persons of great interest 
they relate, for example, to David Phillips, to E. Howard Hunt, um, to uh, Nosenko, the Russian defector. Mm -hmm. Those are, are all uh, records that are being withheld by the National Archives, even though they are JFK assassination records and even though more than 50 years has passed since those records were created. Something that has always concerned me is when the AARB was created, and it specifically told the Secret Service, this was in the 90s, folks, the AARB was uh, under the Clinton administration just after the movie JFK came out. There, again, there was such an uproar by the public for the release of files that Clinton set up something called the AARB, which is the Assassination Records Review Board, or ARRB, whatever it is, the acronym right. is. Yeah. Um, they told the Secret Service at that time, Jim, and, and you know this, not to destroy any records. So the very next day, folks, what did the Secret Service do? Went out and had a, a fire, virtually. They just destroyed records ad nauseum. So what concerns me, is there any records left that would actually point a finger or give us any more information than what we already know Um or have the most important of those documents already been destroyed? Any speculation on that? Well, I, I, I just say that uh, uh, we know that thousands of pages of records are being withheld in their entirety. Mm -hmm. And the reason they're being withheld is because the CIA wants them to be withheld. Logically, you want what you want to be withheld is going to be sensitive stuff. That's why it's being withheld. So it, it must have some significance, whether it relates directly to the Kennedy assassination or not, um, is not the issue. It is it is significant in some way, and that's why it's being withheld. Mm. We will not know the extent of that. Um, significance until we actually get the records and can review them. Do you think more disclosure will be coming when Fidel Castro finally passes away? And I say that because for two reasons. Um, I had interviewed Ted Sorensen. Um, I had sat across from him in his Manhattan apartment. And he gave some indication that disclosure would soon be coming on the assassination. Uh, without giving too much away, um, I did my own research and found out that some of the missiles are still in Cuba. And I'm wondering if that could be part of the reason why there is still so much secrecy surrounding all these files to today. And perhaps it might give away how intelligence gathers their information as well. And perhaps they don't want to give those secrets away. Any speculation on that one? No, I'm not. I'm not going going to speculate on that. I think that uh, uh, what is uh, of uh, interest is the fact that um, the uh, former head of uh, counterintelligence for the CIA for the uh, for for uh, Cuba, mm -hmm. um, General Fabian Escalante. Mm -hmm. 
um, has uh, written or cooperated in the publication of some books which set forth uh, his view of the evidence concerning the assassination of President Kennedy. Uh, and uh, he has uh, uh, given some, some rather specific information about uh, what uh, who he thinks was behind the assassination. Um, uh, so um, that has been generally ignored in the press. It's been totally ignored in the press, basically. Except, folks, you will be able to hear more of this incredible, incredible story and in-depth research from the top-notch guys in the JFK research community, and some of them you will know. I'm going to read some of them out now that have been on this show numerous times. You will recognize them. Well, you know, Gail Jackson, folks, fans of this show will know. She was just here a couple of weeks ago. Joan Mellon as well, three weeks ago. Last week we had Alan Dale on. Alan Dale, folks, will be hosting this conference that's taking place on September 26th through December 28th of this year, 2014, in the Bethesda Hyatt Regency. Um, for more information on that, you can go to the aarclibrary.org website or simply www.nightfrightshow.com. The, uh, the link will be there for you, and I would urge anybody who can travel there to go there. Some of the other people there will be Jeff Morley we've been talking about, uh, John Newman, uh, Jim Lazar, who is our guest tonight, will be presenting as well. Jim, what are you going to present on? Anything uh, what's some I'm of your new revelations? I'm not a hundred percent sure I'm going to present because okay. Okay. we have we have um, uh, a, a very large number of people already who are going to be presenters, and they are the people who really know uh, the subject matter. I am uh, a a person who has uh, devoted his efforts to trying to get the information out through various means, including the Freedom of Information Act. So my time is spent, uh, uh, an awful lot of it is spent simply litigating to get the information out rather than having a great deal of time to review the information. I, I, do, pick, I do pick up on a lot of information, but um, I'm also 74 years old now and I have visual problems, so it's difficult for me to... Uh, to read, and uh, it's hard for me to keep up with the the very fast pace of uh, research now. Understood, Jim. Also, folks, Larry Hancock will be there, and, you know, he's been on the show numerous times. Lamar Waldron as well, numerous times. And one of my favorite guys of all time and a true American hero, Abraham Bolden, will be there. That's right, the first African-American Secret Service agent. Hand-picked. Let me... Please go ahead. Uh, yeah, let me hold off on that. Uh, we're intending to invite uh, Abraham Bolden. Oh, I'm but sorry, I thought it was done. Yes, we haven't yet uh, uh, got in touch with him, but I, I think that will be imminent. But I can't say for certain that he will be there as of this point. Okay, understood. So hold off on that Abraham Bolden one, folks, because uh, we're just waiting for confirmation. And as soon as we know confirmation, of course, you can trust this show to tell you all that information. Now... I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your own research uh, with James Earl Ray. Now, folks, as you all know, James Earl Ray 
was the purported assassin of Dr. Martin Luther King, April 4th, 1968. What I'm interested in, Jim, is because I herald from Montreal, the whole Montreal connection and James Earl Ray. I've been down to the club that uh, Mr. Ray says he met, um, oh, Raoul in. Raoul. Uh, and Raoul. Raoul. And also just around the corner from that, there was a sighting five years earlier. This was 1967, folks, Expo 67 year in Montreal when James Earl Ray was spotted. Four years earlier in the summer of 1963, just virtually around the corner from where James Earl Ray was spotted in a club, guess who was handing out leaflets? Yep, our friend Lee Harvey Oswald. Um also, just up the street from that is a place where MK Ultra did a lot of invest in some of their diabolical uh, experiments on people. And um, I was just curious if you could talk a little bit about the Montreal connection and James Earl Ray. Well, I'm not I'm not well equipped to do it at the moment. Um, um, it, it's been, uh, gosh, it's been. <laughs> <laughs> 40, 40 years since I was really deeply involved in the James Earl Ray case. And my... Uh, well, just tell us, my, do you think he was guilty? Do you think he was uh, I, I do not think he was guilty. And, um, in fact, I wrote an article uh, uh, on the circumstances of his guilty plea, which go go into that. I also did write... Uh, an article which was published in the Washington Post on um, on the the Raoul uh, issue, um, but most of my effort again was spent as a litigator. I I spent four years uh, between 1970 and 74 trying to get uh, James Earl Ray uh, the trial he never had and. We had a two-week evidentiary hearing at which we put on evidence that we felt uh, indicated that he did not uh, commit the crime, and we actually had him take the witness stand, and on the witness stand he denied uh, having shot Dr. King. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, uh, the legal system ruled that uh, he had pled guilty voluntarily um, and therefore, the question of, of whether or not the evidence indicated that he actually did it was irrelevant. Isn't that uh, amazing? Yes, it is an amazing legal standard. Um, and uh, uh, so, the uh, the circumstances uh, uh, of, of that case are it's it's extraordinarily extraordinary as are the circumstances of of um, all three of the major assassinations of the 1960s um, uh, the actually probably I should say four but certainly uh, Senator Robert Kennedy uh, is also um, a, a very important issue uh, because the evidence uh, uh, is, is just overwhelming. It's stronger than in any case that that assassination was uh, accomplished through um, uh, more than one person. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, at some point in the future, we, we will 
uh, we'll uh, try to deal with that case as, as well. Uh, but at the moment, we're, we're concentrated on JFK. Okay. Is there one or two researchers in particular you're looking forward to hearing their new revelations, their new research? Well, I think uh, I think John Newman uh, and Dan Hardway are certainly uh, at the top of my list. Um, they they will be a focus of the uh, the convention. Yes. There seems to be a new step forward with all this new research that is coming forth. Um, I'm going to coin a phrase Alan Dale calls it. He says the deep end of the pool. Um, I think we made a major step five years ago when Cherry Feaster did her great work uh, as a CSI, and I think now we're making new inroads into the assassination as well with folks like John Newman and and the whole list of people that you have coming there on September 26th through the 28th, folks. We're talking about the new conference that's going to be taking place in Bethesda, Maryland, just outside of D.C., Washington, D.C., so you can go to Washington as well if you uh, want to pile it all into one nice little tour package. It won't be a problem. Uh, that's taking place, this conference, on September 26th to the 28th. Is there a name uh, for the conference, a specific it's name? The the uh, the Warren, Warren uh, Commission report and the JFK is fascination, five decades of significant uh, disclosures. Okay. So, again, folks, I'll put that information up on the website as well, Show. Jim Lazar we're speaking with tonight. Thank you for joining us tonight, Jim. Um, I'm just wondering, is there anything else you'd like to uh, tell the folks about? No, just that I think that it's um, uh, very important to uh, – Pay attention to this issue, and if you can come, uh, please do so. Uh, we need all the support we can get. The issue is, um, we think, critical because, in essence, the uh, assassinations of the 1960s wiped out a generation of uh, liberal left political leadership, and we have suffered from that ever since. Uh, the uh, we've suffered in various ways, including the um, the inherent unwillingness of uh, of liberals and left to uh, take risk that might end in their death. Mm. Uh, we have uh, uh, suffered because the political spectrum has moved dramatically to the right. And we have suffered because of the loss of trust in government and other institutions. All of that has uh, left the United States in the very bad circumstances that it is in at the present time. Ideally, what would you like to see happen? Well, I think that that uh, there are uh, – first, we want the records that still – remain withheld, released. Secondly, uh, Congress needs to investigate the um, performance of the the JFK Records Act and the Assassination Records Review Board to see 
what was learned from that experience? What were the accomplishments? And there were many accomplishments, mm -hmm. but also uh, what didn't happen that should have happened. And one of those things is the fact that despite the fact that Congress said the records were to be released promptly, that has not occurred. Uh, third, um, and uh, this may seem quixotic to dream of this, but we know that the last official investigation into the JFK assassination was undermined by an, an agency that itself was under investigation in connection with the crime, mm -hmm. the CIA. Right. Congress needs to hold an investigation to determine why the CIA undermined an official investigation into the assassination of a president of the United States. Do you think there should be another congressional investigation, something else opened up? Uh, I, I think there should be, yes. That's not the only avenue, mm. but that is certainly uh, uh, something that I think should be done. What do you think the possibilities of that happening under the Obama administration? Well, it will be difficult, but um, this case has been uh, has a history of astonishing turn after astonishing turn. Mm. Uh, there have been already, I think, about seven official investigations. And uh, while each one has been, uh, uh, to some degree, a cover-up, each one has also resulted in the disclosure of more information that is needed by the public. So I don't think you can rule out um, uh, uh, new possibilities. The issue at the moment is um, that um, Cong Congress itself, the Senate in particular, has become very uh, 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 disturbed by the CIA's conduct in interfering with its investigation, with the investigation of the Senate Intelligence uh, Committee into uh, the CIA's torture practices. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, uh, Congressman Nancy Pelosi has said that Congress is afraid of the CIA. Well, we can't have any kind of a decent government. We can't have a democratic government if the Congress is afraid of the CIA. That issue needs to be addressed. Somehow the Congress, the, the Congress people involved have to get the courage to do it. If, if they can't do that, we're finished. We're lost. Hang on just this. Whoops. There he's gone now. Um, the other, the other point I wanted to make too is, again, with the release of new documents, perhaps there might be something that would lead to something else. Now, one of our, the problems that we all face researching the JFK assassination is the witnesses one by one are, are leaving us. And, um, you know, I revert back to Ted Sorensen. When I interviewed him, I had no idea that was going to be his last interview. I think he yep. knew it though. Oddly enough, um, because he seemed ready for disclosure. 
Yeah. Well, there are. They, it, it is a significant problem, and that's one of the reasons why the, the the records that remain withheld should be released immediately. Um, but there are always um, there are new developments in in the research area that um, pr provide. Uh, significant increases in the capability uh, of researchers to gain access to information and to understand it. Uh, one of them is um, a, uh, a project that my organization, the AARC, um, uh, entered into with uh, Rex Bradford's uh, Mary Farrell Foundation. Mm -hmm. And uh, he has produced a disk now that um, uh, contains a million pages of records on it. You can put it on your computer, your laptop, your, plug it into anything, and you can research in an instant a million pages of records that are superbly uh, organized in all kinds of different ways, searchable in all kinds of different ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's way ahead of what the National Archives can provide you. And it's available if you go uh, uh, on uh, the Mary Farrell website, uh, and I think it's also on our, it's on our, our new website, aarclibrary.org. Uh, we'll uh, highlight it, and uh, researchers can purchase it there, and it will give... Uh, 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 instant access to all kinds of records, um, a million pages, essentially. To continue the research. Folks, the name of the conference coming up on September 26th through 28th, 2004, 14, yep, is Warren Commission, JFK assassination. Um, and they're going to be looking at the 50 years of the Warren Commission and the 51st year of the JFK assassination. Now, what's startling about this is the lineup. John Newman, of course, we talked about. Gail Jackson, who's been on the show. Joan Mellon, who's been on the show. You can find all these shows online, folks, at the www.nightfrightshow.com website. And uh, they're free, of course, as always, to listen to in the archives. Uh, Alan Dale will be there. He was just on last week. Jeff Morley, another good friend of mine from the Washington Post. Larry Hancock, Lamar Waldron, and Abraham, perhaps Abraham Bolden will be there. Let me re, let me rephrase that. Lamar Waldron, um, you know, he's got a, his book, Legacy of Secrecy, has been optioned by uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Robert De Niro is supposed to be starring in a future film coming up. Um, about the content of the book. It seems that every time we get a bump from a Hollywood film, I think back to Mark Wayne's executive action, I think, of course, to Oliver Stone's masterpiece, cine cinematic masterpiece, whether you agree with the synopsis or not, uh, from a filmmaker's point of view, it's a masterpiece. Um, JFK, which ended up with the AARB, and I, I, you know, and I'm certain that executive action and the Geraldo Show helped bring about the uh, House Select Committee on Assassinations. Do you think that Lamar's new film, I hate to call it his new film, but uh, Robert De Niro's new film and DiCaprio's new film based on Lamar's book may do the same? 
Nate um, Wise? I, uh, I have no idea. Don't Fair. know. Fair enough. Are you looking forward to seeing it? Uh, well, of course. Okay. And Lamar will be there as well, folks, by the way. Um, can you talk just a couple of minutes about Lamar? Uh, well, um, uh, he's a, a, a very uh, dedicated researcher. He used to come uh, to my organization. Uh, he and Tom Hartman uh, came many times to my organization to do uh, research uh, uh, back in the 1990s, uh, and uh, and uh, so I respect uh, the dedication and the amount of work he's done, and he has uh, uncovered significant documents. I don't necessarily agree with uh, some of the, th- the theses he's put forward, uh, but uh, I, I listen to interest with what he has to say. Fair enough. Yeah, it, Lamar's thesis, folks, essentially is that JFK was working on a coup, a palace coup in Cuba with uh, Commander Alameda, who was the third in charge in Cuba. Uh, there was the two Castro brothers, of course, and then in charge of the army was this Commander Alameda. And Lamar's thesis, according to his research, he's uncovered that he believes that Alameda was on a palace, in on a palace coup and that coup was going to take place December 3rd, 1963, and just 10 days prior to that, of course, JFK was killed. And um, so that is his thesis. His other part of his thesis is that the mob was far more involved than we were led to believe in the setup and the carrying out of the assassination. So that look for that in a new film, I guess... It should be out sometime this year. It was supposed to be out last year, but DiCaprio was so darn busy. I think he had four films, four major films out last year, and I guess it just didn't happen. Uh, Larry Hancock, one of my all-time favorite guys for research. Can you say a few a few words about him? Um, well, I, I don't personally know uh, Larry Con- Hancock, but uh, uh, I'm aware of his research, and we thought that he we should invite him to the conference. I think it's a good choice. I think you're going to be pleasantly uh, surprised and pleased with him. He's a gentleman for sure. Gail Jackson? Um, I have had no direct contact with her. She's uh, my executive director, Jerry Polikoff, has had um, contact with her, but uh, I'll be very uh, interested to uh, see what she has to say. Yeah, again, folks, that show is in the archives, www.nightfrightshow.com, right there in the archives for you to listen to. Fascinating account of her grandfather's film, the Nix film, which was another film of the Kennedy assassination, and the original has gone missing. And what's very alarming about this film is it shows the assassination right in front of, of all places, the picket fence on the grassy knoll but shot from the south side looking north as opposed to the Zapruder film that was shot from the north side looking south. So it's very interesting to think that the original has gone missing again. Uh, another classic piece of evidence that the original just doesn't exist anymore, whether or not you believe the Zapruder film was altered or not or the Nix film or not. It's just, it's just the state that, this evidence should not have gone missing. I mean, this is the murder of the President of the United States. 
this uh, should have been handled much, much better and definitely with more discipline on all parts. Our guest tonight is Jim Lazar. Uh, the conference we're talking about will be taking place on September 26th through the September 28th, 2014 at the Bethesda Hyatt Regency. And uh, you can get more information on this conference at the aarclibrary.org website. Um, they're going to be talking about the 50, 50th anniversary of the Warren Commission, and we all know that's pretty much fiction at this point. And uh, I just want to put this out to you, uh, Jim, while I've got you on. Why do you think – I think we've pretty much come to the conclusion that the Warren Commission was put out to appease the public. Why do you think they did that? Do you think there was some malice behind it, or do you think that they were really in fear that there, this could start World War III? Well, um, uh, my personal opinion is that the the uh, World War uh, uh, III uh, uh, claim was uh, a tactic used by Lyndon Johnson um, to get Earl Warren to head up the commission. Um, and um, I'm rather than having me comment on that, I think we will have speakers at our conference who will address the circumstances of the creation of the Warren Report and uh, uh, and how it came about. I'll leave I'll leave that to them. They're the experts. I'm not. You know, even Lyndon Johnson said that he didn't believe the magic bullet theory when the Warren Report put it forward. So there you have it, folks. Um, one of one of one of one of the one of the interesting developments that has happened since the issuance of the Warren Report is that we now know that a majority of the members of the Warren Commission didn't believe the single book. They didn't believe the lone assassin theory. Uh, they actually expressed doubts about it. I think four four members of the commission, of the seven members on the commission, expressed doubts about the theory, and uh, the most prominent one being Senator Richard Russell. But there were others, and uh, so it's uh, rather ironic that a a report which. Uh, has been accepted as in the tradition of Earl Warren in producing unanimous opinions on controversial issues. Um, this one, in fact, that is uh, a facade. It's not what actually uh, it's not does not actually reflect the reality of what the commissioners themselves believed. Do you think they reached anything that was true? Do you think they got uh, anything right? Well, <laughs> Besides their names they, and their spelling, they reported, they reported that Kennedy was assassinated. So yes, they really the answer. That was true. <laughs> there you have it, folks. Jim Lazar has been our guest for the first hour tonight, and we've been talking about that upcoming conference in September on September 26th through September 28th, taking place in Bethesda. Um, at the Hyatt Regency, and that's uh, 2014, by the way, folks, in case you're listening to this in five years or ten years, because once it's up on the Internet, it's there for life. But this website that I'm about to give you will be there forever, AARC Library, 
aarclibrary.org, aarclibrary.org. There you will find a wealth of information, including links that you can get your tickets online from the comfort of your own home. Also, www.nightfrightshow.com. There you can click on our t- tonight's guest picture, and that will take you right to uh, the aarclibrary.org website as well. And there's tons of information there. Once again, part of the lineup, John Newman, Gail Jackson has been on the show. Joan Mellon has been on the show. Alan Dale was just on the show last week, and he's going to be hosting it. He's a terrific guy and a hell of a drummer, too, let me tell you. Uh, Jeff Morley, uh, Larry Hancock has been on the show, Lamar Waldron, and perhaps Abraham Bolden. And as you know, he's been on the show as well. And many, many, many more names that you will recognize if you go to the website. Jim, I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's been my pleasure as well, sir. And uh, hopefully I'll see you uh, in September. Okay. We'll look forward to it. Thank you, my friend. Have a good night. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye now. And, folks, that was uh, Jim Lazar. And uh, you're listening to Night Fright. I'm your host, Brent Holland. And there's the music. We'll be back in six minutes. Stick around. More JFK to come. Welcome back, folks. It's Brent Holland from Night Fright, www.nightfrightshow.com. There you can find a wealth of information. You can find all our shows, for example, free. All our shows are free to download and listen to any time you want. So there you go, all in the archives, and there's tons of shows. As everybody that listens to this show knows, nobody but nobody does the JFK assassination, the Martin Luther King assassination, the Bobby assassination better than Night Fright. And that's one thing I'm very, very proud of. There's shows there on UFOs as well, all the top-notch researchers. You recognize names like Stanton Friedman, John Lear, uh, Art Campbell. All kinds of great shows there. Once again, they're all there free for you to download. www.nightfrightshow.com. Settle in, folks. We have a full hour left. Get the coffee going. Get the tea going. Get a beverage of your choice going. Settle back. Put your feet up. Kick back. Enjoy this time. This time is for yourselves. Just relax. We're going to continue with JFK. Uh, my, apologize, my apologies to those tuning in expecting to hear Bill Simpich. Unfortunately, Bill Simpich is MIA. <laughs> it's the only way I can put it. I think it's another case of a West Coast guy getting his times mixed up with the East Coast. Even though uh, we had spoken and I had reminded him it was East Coast time, he seemed to acknowledge that. I think this is where things get screwed up sometimes. However, this is showbiz, babe. And the show's got to go, so we're going to continue no matter what, without hesitation. We're going to dive right into it. I just want to recap what took place in the first hour for those of you that are just joining us now. Jim Lazar was here. He was. Are you ready for this? James Earl Ray, folks. He's the purported assassin of Lee, of Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah, isn't that funny? Of Dr. Martin Luther King. And um, Jim Lazar was here. He was an attorney, an attorney for uh, James Earl Ray. And uh, geez, he's got some stories to tell. But we were discussing a new, brand new, new this year anyways, conference coming up in Washington, D.C. 
And uh, it's a conference on the JFK assassination and the 50 years of the Warren Commission. And uh, you can find that information at aarclibrary.org. That's the website. And you can order your tickets online from the comfort of your own home, set up your own uh, little travel itinerary. I mean, you're right next to Washington, D.C. It's going to be taking place in Bethesda at the Hyatt Regency there, which is a top-notch hotel. So I think everybody's in for a good time. And uh, by staying in Bethesda, it's just outside of D.C., so the prices are much cheaper, easier access to. And yet you can still travel to D.C. and take in all D.C. has to offer, which is quite a lot. Anyways, they'll be, they'll be having these fantastic, phenomenal researchers there making presentations. And John Newman is one. He's got an amazing book out called The CIA at Oswald, where he examines all the intricate connections between the two. And that is well worth getting and well worth taking in. That's a reason alone just to travel to go to this conference. Gail Jackson will be there talking about her grandfather's film, the next film. And uh, she was just on the show a couple of weeks ago. You'll know that. And we talked about the, the next film, which is the film that was shot uh, November 22nd, 1963, right in Dealey Plaza, just opposite um, where Sapruder shot his film. As a matter of fact, you can see Sapruder in the next film. And what's alarming is the original film has gone missing. So what was taken out, what was added, we don't know. She'll be talking about that and her quest to track down that original film. Joan Mellon will be there. We just had Joan on. She talks. She's probably the most knowledgeable person I know on the Jim Garrison case that he had against Clay Shaw, and that's uh, the JFK movie in a nutshell. That's Jim Garrison that was played by uh, Kevin Costner, and um, Joan will probably be there talking about that and some of her new research. Again, she was just on the show. Alan Dale, who was just on last week, will be there. He'll be hosting the show, and he's a wealth of information. Jeff Morley from the Washington Post will be there. Larry Hancock, everybody loves Larry Hancock. He's such a great guy and is such a great researcher, and there's a wealth of shows in the www.nightfrightshow.com website with Larry's name attached to them. Lamar Waldron, everybody knows Lamar. Uh, he's got his book that has been optioned by Leonard DiCaprio, Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro called Legacy of Secrecy. And hopefully that feature film will be out this year. His uh, synopsis is that the mob ordered the hit on JFK. I think the mob was involved, folks, but probably to a lesser degree. And perhaps one of my most favorite guys in all time will be at the conference as well. And if he's going to be there, you've got to go because this is a living legend. This is living a living historical figure. His name is Abraham Bolden, and he is a true American hero. We're just waiting for confirmation about Mr. Bolden, if you'll be there. He was the first African-American Secret Service agent handpicked by JFK. How fantastic is that if he's going to be there? So all this information, again, folks, can be found on the www.nightfrightshow.com website. And uh, just click on uh, the guests for tonight who was Jim Lazar, and that'll take you right to the aarclibrary.org website where you can order your tickets now to continue 
where I left off at the first part <laughs> of the show. Um, in the second part of our show, we have a new author with a new book. The book is called JFK Assassination, From the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza, Interviews with Witnesses and Specialists, including the last interview with Ted Sorensen, JFK's friend and speechwriter. And the author's name is Brent Holland. <laughs> this is what happens, folks, when you get stuck and a guest gets kafunkled and doesn't show up. You end up with the host rambling a little bit, I'm afraid, tonight. I thought we'd talk a little bit about the book and my impressions of Ted Sorensen. I was very, very honored to have been invited to uh, his Manhattan apartment in uh, September 2010. And as it turned out, uh, Ted died just a few weeks after that, and I ended up with his last interview. And thank God I was uh, I went back to the hotel after getting all the way downstairs, and I was rushing to get to his place on time. I went back up and got my video camera. Something told me, do not blow this opportunity, and I had no idea if Ted would let me videotape him or not, and as it turned out, he insisted on it. So something was up. I don't know if he knew it was going to be one of his final interviews. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to get into that type of speculation, certainly not. But he unloaded. I'll be honest with you. He unloaded, and you can find that uh, – that interview in the uh, in my new book, JFK Assassination, and I think that's what discerns this book from most of the other books, is that particular interview, because Ted was part of the inner circle, let's face it. Ted Sorensen was not only JFK's speechwriter, and he wrote all those amazing speeches. You know the American University's speech, the peace speech? He wrote that. He wrote the... Uh, the inaugural address, he wrote uh, all these amazing – the moon speech. Think of any speech, and that was that was essentially Ted Sorensen. Now, what is amazing about all this is he wasn't only his speechwriter, as I said. He was also Kennedy's closest aide. And during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when we were that close – and I hear all the Johnny Carson fans yelling right now, how close were we? We were so close that Ted told me that Jackie, President Kennedy's wife, called Mr. Kennedy up and said, uh, I'm going to bring the kids home because she wasn't at the White House. I'm going to bring the King kids home to the White House tomorrow because I want us all to die together. That's how close we were. Now, it's hard today to imagine that, but let me try and put it in perspective for you. Just imagine, we know right now, on this particular date, August 5th, 2014, there's some mishaps going on in the Ukraine. Uh, a Malaysian airplane was just shot down. It looks like it was shot down by Russian separatist rebels inside the Ukraine that had been armed with missiles. Uh, and I'm not talking shoulder missiles, folks. I'm talking surface-to-air missiles by the Russians. Now, just imagine how fast it can escalate if a disgruntled Ukrainian got upset with this and went and shot Vladimir Putin. And all of a sudden, you've got Putin dead. In retaliation for that, the Russian troops walk across the Ukrainian border. Yeah. In retaliation for that, what does NATO do? So you can see how fast it can escalate. 
Now, just imagine a U.S. transport uh, truck being shot with, with hundreds of troops dead or a tank or a series of tanks being sh- shot up or, God forbid, an aircraft carrier goes down with seven or 8,000 uh, service people aboard. There's going to have to be a retaliation for that, and it will escalate very, very quickly. I would give it 48 hours to five days before we were at a nuclear standoff, and I don't know this time around if we could go back from the brink. All of a sudden, President Obama gets a call from Michelle saying, I'm going to bring the two girls home tomorrow because we're going to all die together. Now, don't be misled and think that there's a a bomb-proof bunker underneath the White House or anywhere else. There are nuclear weapons now that can penetrate. I know here in Canada, they've discarded all the underground bunkers for government because there are ground-penetrating nuclear bombs. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. You cannot go deep enough or long enough. So that would be the scenario. I hope that brings that into focus. Ted Sorensen was the man that the only man JFK trusted with writing that letter to Khrushchev to get Khrushchev to back down. Otherwise, none of us, and I'm not kidding, we were that close. None of us would be here right now. They didn't know if he would accept or he would not accept. Ted told me also that one of his biggest concerns when he wrote the letter, you're writing it in English. It's got to be translated into the Russian language. So how difficult is that to keep the same connotations, the same phraseology, the exactness of it all in translation over to Russia? That's a tough task, but he was able to pull it off. And uh, But for the grace of God, there go I, and so do we all because of Ted Sorensen. That's how crucial Ted is to the narrative of JFK. Um, JFK trusted him. Completely. He trusted him. He called him his moral blood bank and with good reason because uh, Ted wrote all those speeches about um, civil rights. He pushed Kennedy to take greater action with civil rights. Um, it's pretty incredible stuff. Uh, you know, when I met Ted, he was this unassuming man, probably five six, five seven. Not a very tall man, very unassuming. Uh, he was a little hunched over. And he met me with just a, a plain checkered shirt on and uh, some khaki pants. And uh, he invited me in. And his eyes just stared. And I couldn't figure out why his eyes were staring. And then he told me, he said, he had had a stroke um, just around 9-11. And he was in the hospital for 9-11. And while he was in the hospital, of course, 9-11 happened, but it left him within paradise like he was virtually blind. And uh, anyways, he was kind enough to have me in his Manhattan apartment. I was down in New York City. There was three Nobel Peace laureates I wanted to, to interview. Um, one was Shumini Badi, who was a Nobel Peace laureate 2002 from Iran. Uh, Jody Williams, uh, Nobel Peace Laureate for uh, Landmines, uh, what an incredible woman she was too, and uh, Mirid Maguire, who was uh, instrumental in bringing about peace in Ireland in 1978, I believe it was. She won the Nobel Peace uh, Prize as well. So I went down there to invite to uh, interview these three incredible people, and just on a whim, I called up Ted's handler, uh, Laurie Morris, and uh, I had known Lori because I had had Ted on the show before, but just interviewed him over the telephone. 
And Lori said, sure, uh, just give me a second. And she called right back and she said, be at Ted's apartment. Ted's apartment, excuse me, <laughs> at 4 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. I couldn't sleep all night. It was Ted Sorensen, right? I mean, this is a heavy duty. This is as close to the JFK as you're ever going to get. And uh, I was going to spend an afternoon with him in his apartment, and he was ever so gracious, and uh, he just sat down. Now, I want to tell you, even though his eyes were straight ahead, I mean, this guy was so alert. He was so inspiring. I understood immediately when I spoke with him and I saw him why JFK was JFK. Now, I'm not demeaning JFK in any sense. But everyone knows that the Beatles would not have been the Beatles without George Martin. That's what Ted Sorensen was to JFK. Ted wrote the words, JFK delivered them. There was a symbiotic relationship between the two men, like never before. I think, I think one of the reasons why JFK was so successful, and I mentioned this to Ted and he agreed as well, was that New Frontier dream team that he had. And, you know, you look at McNamara, you look at Dave Powers, you look at Kenny O'Donnell, uh, I'm missing some, Bundy and all the rest, Rusk. Not one of those guys ever had a bad thing to say about JFK, ever. Uh, there was no con- congressional investigation on any of them. And these were straight-up stand-up guys and smart guys. And I think... That's why JFK's short time in office was so so successful and he was able to accomplish so much is because he had that team around him and he offered them the leadership. And that's significant because a lot of leaders will micromanage. A lot of leaders will just walk away and come back and just make a rash decision. So I think that's one of the reasons why that JFK's presidency was so successful and uh, Ted reiterates that completely Uh, amazing stuff so that's a big part of my book folks is the whole Ted Sorensen thing Um, just let me read this one little part about JFK and uh, the leadership Uh, you know I wasn't going to ask Ted about this and I wasn't going to include this part of the interview because it was about 9-11 and JFK had long passed away However, I realized that it further illustrated JFK, his times, and his vision as opposed to leadership today. It emphasizes just what his assassination meant to the American people and to the world. Just as 9-11 had impacted our world today, so did the assassination of JFK. So this is my question to Ted Sorensen. I'd like to discuss the differences in leadership between George W. Bush and President Kennedy and perhaps your speculation on how JFK would have handled 9-11. But first, where were you during that day, sir? Well, you don't know this about me, Brent, is that I had a stroke that year back in 2001 and it pretty well eliminated my eyesight, which is why it took me a long time to write the book. And he's talking about the book, Counselor. And um, he goes on to say, but when I first heard about the second airplane going into the uh, the second tower, I knew it was no accident, and it was an act of terrorism. And listen to these ominous words, folks, and that the United States was going to be a very different country if 
we started imitating what other countries under siege do, which is usually to crack down on civil liberties, crack down on free speech, crack down on immigration, and I regretted that. And George W. Bush, who first of all did nothing at all when he heard about it, he was reading a book to first graders down in Florida and was too stunned to do anything. But then he made a speech, which was, I suppose, now this is coming from Ted Sorensen, folks, who's probably the greatest speechwriter ever. I suppose what the speechwriters always call for, very nationalistic, chauvinistic, militaristic, vowing revenge, which a long time ago Thomas Jefferson said is the cheapest emotion there is. So, you know, these are part of the words that Ted told me, and uh, I went on and I asked him, how would Kennedy have, do you feel JFK would have handled it differently, more diplomatically? Sorensen answered me, he said, I think he would have. As I say, I think he would have. It's not easy to negotiate with somebody whose headquarters are in a cave. He's talking about Osama bin Laden here. He's, at this point, Osama bin Laden was still alive. But, you know, this translates through to every terrorist that's alive today, too, because how do you negotiate with a religious fanatic? And here's the answer. And there is no deterrent back in the works. Because he, because he has deterrence depends upon the other side, like Khrushchev. Khrushchev had a whole civilization and urban and industrial empire to defend against the war. Osama bin Laden more of a religious fanatic in his cave. He has nothing to defend. He and his followers believe that dying in a suicide bombing, which they blow up the infidel, then the United States will guarantee them a place in paradise. No, I think that Kennedy would have, I mean, after all, Islam is a distinguished classic religion. It has over a billion adherents in this planet, and I am certain, I am certain Kennedy would have looked for a way to find someone with whom some understanding of a better world might be reached. Ted Sorensen, folks, the book is called JFK Assassination from the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza, Interviews with Witnesses and Specialists, including the last interview with Ted Sorensen, JFK's friend and speechwriter. Easy way to get this book www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on the book cover on the right-hand side of the page, and that'll take you right to a place where you can order it online. Also, it is available right across the board, all Amazons, Amazon.ca, Canadian, Amazon.com, American, Amazon.uk, which is, uh, of course, Great Britain. Also, you can get it at Barnes & Noble. You can also get it at Chapters Indigo in Canada online. And uh, I would urge you all to get it. I wrote it specifically for today's generation, the generation that has no emotional connect with JFK, the generation that was born long after. And a lot of, you know, after doing a whole series of these shows, I realized that there is a huge disconnect. Many people don't even know who Jack Ruby is. And those that are listening right now that don't know, uh, Jack Ruby is the purport, is the assassin of Lee Harvey Oswald, who was the purported assassin of JFK. Only uh, a few days after JFK's assassination, one of the classic, classic 
laws of assassination is to kill the assassin so they can't talk, and that's exactly what took place three days after JFK's assassination. And that was done by a fella who was a known mafioso, by the way. There's that mafia connection coming in again. And uh, by the name of Jack Ruby, so that's who Jack Ruby was. But many folks that have list that I've come across that have emailed me didn't even know who Jack Ruby was. So that's why I wrote this book. I thought, well, this disconnects getting a little bit too big. And this is a great, great thing for the novice if they're unaware of all the scenarios that were going on that day and afterwards. This is a first-person witness book. I mean, the first-person witnesses in this book are priceless. This is an historic document. As I said, Ted Sorensen starts us off, and Ted passed away, unfortunately. So this is his last interview for all time, and it's here in this book verbatim. That's what I did with this book. I wanted to make it an historical document, and I didn't um, step on any of his words. It's virtually a transcript of our interview. Other first-person witnesses, oh, you're going to love this one, and I love this guy, and it was uh, praising him in the first hour of the show. Abraham Bolden, the first African-American Secret Service agent, in his own words, right here in the book, historical. Incredible stuff. He was the first African-American Secret Service agent, as I just said. He tells all the stories about how he was uh, called the N-word, right there by fellow Secret Service agents, uh, how some of the Secret Service agents cried out and said they would never, never, ever guard the president because he was an end-lover. Uh, he talks about agents being drunk the day of November 22nd, 1963, and certainly nobody reacted quick enough. Uh, I mean, they should have been just on the edge and been able to get right across and protect the president and cover the first lady right away, and nobody bloody moved till it was way too late. And uh, he talks about all the womanizing and everything uh, when the guards were supposed to be protecting President Kennedy. And there's a lovely little story in there that you're going to like when he was protecting Carolyn and Jackie on the beach at Hyannisport. That is priceless. Well worth the admission just for that. Some more first-person witnesses, well, Robert McClelland, Dr. Robert McClelland is the doctor, one of the doctors who worked on JFK, and many people don't know that uh, JFK was still alive when he was brought into Parkland Hospital. Now, the back of his head was gone. He certainly was not conscious, but he was alive, his heart strong. And he talks about all the things they did all the things they did to try and resuscitate the president, because when you've got the president of the United States virtually on a gurney in front of you, you pull out all the stops, baby. You, do, you try everything to keep this man alive. He walks us through the last rites when Father Hubert came in. He tells us that story. He was the first person witnesses, uh, witness. He tells us uh, Jackie's reactions, which I won't go into right now. Uh, and alarmingly, he tells us about the wound that he witnessed in the back of JFK's head, uh, but the size of a closed fist in the lower right-hand qu quadrant of JFK's head, and the alarming discrepancies in the official autopsy picture. And he's very, very concerned over that, whether that was a cover-up on purpose or just an error, error, because that hole in the back of JFK's head does not appear anywhere 
on that picture. And I've got a picture of a drawing Mr. McClellan made um, showing, indicating where the wound was. And right next to it, I've got the picture of the actual autopsy, autopsy photo. And indeed, the two are different. And every witness at Parkland Hospital that day witnessed uh, the back of JFK's head blown out. So we cover that in depth. There's another first-person witness. Another first-person witness, Beverly Oliver. She's been on the show. Everybody knows Beverly. She knew Jack Ruby. She worked in an adjacent club when she was only 17 years old in a burlesque, quote-unquote, club right next to the Carousel Club. The Carousel Club, folks, is where Jack Ruby had his own burlesque club, and he would bring dancers in, and uh, Beverly, in between breaks from her own club, would run over to Jack's club and spend some time. There she says that she saw and was, uh, she saw and witnessed and was introduced to two fellows that is quite alarming. One of the fellows was introduced as Lee Harvey Oswald, and the other fellow was David Ferry. Now, going back to the movie JFK, uh, Oliver Stone illustrates that perfectly in the scene uh, where um, both those fellows are introduced to Beverly, and she witnesses she witnessed those guys together. Now, why that's important is because the Warren report said that, no, none of these guys knew anybody. Um, Jack Ruby didn't know Lee Harvey Oswald, Jack Ruby just acted uh, on impulse. Well, we know now that that's not true because we know now that Jack Ruby actually knew Lee Harvey Oswald and David Ferry, both. David Ferry was a CIA op, and uh, many people feel that uh, to a lesser extent, to a lesser uh, degree, so was Lee Harvey Oswald was working for intelligence as well. And it looks like Lee Harvey Oswald was being set up to be a patsy. So that's all her first-person witness testimony. She was also in Dealey Plaza that day filming. I had just mentioned the Knicks film. She also was filming with her camera and had that confiscated by the FBI and has never seen the film and has never seen the camera ever again. True story right there. She also suffered death threats and... Um, from none other than uh, Woody Harrelson's father. Now, Woody Harrelson, folks, the actor, had nothing to do. He wasn't even born. <laughs> so let me let me make that perfectly clear. It had nothing to do with the assassination. However, his father, Father Harrelson, um, was a known mafia assassin, and um, many people think that uh, he may have been in Dealey Plaza that day. So all that story, all that narrative, first-person witness, historical document, once again, also in the book JFK Assassination from the Oval Office to D.D. Plaza. Another key first-person witness who's in this book. I'm telling you, folks, if you don't know anything about the assassination or if you're new to it and you want to come to it and find out very quickly get you up to speed, this is the book for you. James Tague, many people won't even recognize that name. James Tague was the third person with, uh, third person wounded in Dealey Plaza, November 22nd, 1963. Ah, I needed that. <laughs> he was standing by the triple overpass. Um, 
And, you know, the Warren Commission, as I had mentioned before, came out just after the assassination to investigate everything about the assassination. And their conclusion was, of course, that it was a lone nut assassin by the name of Lee Harvey Oswald. All the bullets originated from behind the president on the sixth floor Texas School Book Depository, the building behind JFK. Satu, that's it. It was a done deal. Et voilà. Suivant next. Not true. The Warren report, there was two Warren reports. The first report was going to come out and it was going to say they found three shells in the sixth floor Texas School Book Depository, which they believed were Lee Harvey Oswald was and shot three shots at the motorcade. Uh, first shot hitting Kennedy. Uh, second shot hitting Governor Connolly, just seated directly in front of Kennedy. And then, of course, the fatal shot, the third and fatal shot hitting Kennedy in the back of the head and taking his head off. Okay, then along comes James Tague, and he says, well, what about my wound? <laughs> Uh-oh, Warren Port virtually had to go back to the presses and change everything. Now they've they've already committed to three shells, three bullets, so now they've got to come up with four wounds. And this is where the magic bullet gets invented. They've got to come up with four wounds with three bullets. So, okay, let's start eliminating bullets. The first bullet, well, let's get rid of one. We know that that ricocheted and hit James Take. So there's one bullet down. We've got two left. Well, we know one bullet for sure hit President Kennedy and killed him, took his head off. So what does that leave us with? One single magic bullet that has to make two wounds in President Kennedy and five wounds in Governor Connolly sitting in front of President Kennedy. That's why it's called the magic bullet. Now, wait, there's more. This bullet comes out in pristine condition. And there's no blood or tissue on it. I go into all kinds of diagrams how this is impossible. I show pictures from the autopsy. I show pictures of the back. I show um, graphics that I, that I made up um, how this is completely impossible and improbable. So this is a story that many people don't know by a brave guy that came forth uh, in August of 1964, just a few months after, uh, sorry, July, June of 1964, just a few months after the assassination, to tell his story. Now, why this is important is because at this point in time, just about every witness that was coming forward was being killed off. So he was a brave man. Now, James has just recently passed away. So again, this is an historical document. And it's all here in the book. So there's all kinds of first-person witnesses. Um, the book is called JFK Assassination from the Oval Office to D.D. Plaza. Interviews with specialists and witnesses, including the last interview with Ted Sorensen, JFK's friend and speechwriter, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on the book cover. That's on the right-hand side. That'll take you right to a spot. Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, Amazon.uk, Barnes & Noble Chapters, Indigo in Canada, uh, where you can order it from the comfort of your own home. Now, I just want to cover something here. Montreal and the assassinations of JFK, Martin Luther King, and RFK. Now, everybody knows about the CIA 
MKUltra Mind Control. Some of that took place in Montreal. I'm going to read you this whole chapter just to give you a little bit of sample of what's in the book. McGill University in my hometown of Montreal is a legendary bastion of celebrated scholars such as Canadian Prime Ministers, Nobel laureates, and U.S. National Security Advisors. Brezhnev went to uh, McGill, by the way. McGill also has a dark past, perhaps one that the administration would like to keep in the shadows, erased from the glorious halls of higher learning at McGill. It's a past that will shock you. It's a past that will horrify you. Worst of all, it's true. I'm talking about the CIA mind control project of the 1950s and 1960s, infamously known as MKUltra. These covert barbaric experiments took place in the heart of Montreal behind locked doors at Montreal's prestigious McGill's Allen Memorial Psychiatric Hospital right here on Canadian soil. Psychiatric patients, folks, they were used as experimental animals and induced with psychotic, mind-altering, and often lethal drug LSD. They also used hypnotic suggestion combined with LSD on their human lab rats in an attempt to alter the reality. To what end, one can only posture. The experiments, absolutely barbaric. Experiments from McGill psychiatrist Dr. Ewan Cameron were well-known and horrifying. But there was another one before him. Now get ready for this ride, folks. Someone who had met Cameron. He, too, was a McGill graduate in psychiatry. His name is Dr. Renatus Hartogs. Remember that name. We know today that Dr. Hartogs worked with the CIA in both Montreal and New York on what we would call today mind control. In those days, however, it was ad- advertised as behavior modification under the guise of the, possibly, of the possibility that troubled youth could be veered off their path of delinquency. Desperate for test cases, he solicited New York's Catholic orphanages offering money to the administrations to, in order to secure test patients. These administrators, who were charged with protecting these children and were governed by the highest of moral standards, readily agreed and turned over their kids in droves. Okay, Lee Harvey Oswald in Montreal. Let's go back to Montreal in the summer of 1963. Prior to November 22nd, 1963, the assassination of JFK, Lee Harvey Oswald was documented as handing out pro-Castro leaflets, not only in New Orleans, but right here in Montreal at the corner of St. James and McGill. And I've got pictures in here too, folks. I'm originally from Montreal. So uh, when I go back to visit mom, I go down and take pictures. <laughs> it's as easy as that. He is witnessed by a Canadian customs official, a professional who is trained to remember and recognize faces. Coincidence, you say? Maybe. But just for the sake of exploring further, what do you say we continue? James Earl Ray in Montreal. Let's fast forward four years from 1963 to 1967, Expo 67 for all of you from Montreal, to a place still in Montreal and directly around the corner from the place where Oswald had been spotted in 1963. 
James Earl Ray, the purported assassin of none other than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., is also documented as frequenting a bar at 121 Rue de la Commune West. It is claimed he met several times with a shadowy figure by the name of Raoul. Ray always deflected guilt for Dr. King's assassination away from himself and onto the shady figure Raoul. On April 4th, 1968, Dr. King fell to a single assassin's bullet at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. James Earl Ray was sought for the murder and was finally arrested and convicted. He would die in prison in 1998. Now, is this just another coincidence? Raoul was alleged to be seen in Dallas in 1963, only a few days prior to JFK's assassination. Raoul had been seen giving Dallas nightclub owner and mafia bagman Jack Ruby $20,000. Now, that's a whack of dough in those days, folks. My own father, I think, was only making 1200 or 1800 a, uh, a year. So twenty grand, you know, you're looking close to a million dollars in today's currency. Um, RFK and Sirhan Sirhan, you know, uh, Sirhan Sirhan, I'm going to have to speed up and just looking at the time, uh, was uh, only two months after the assassination of Dr. King uh, in June 1968. Bobby Kennedy was gunned down in a hotel kitchen in Los Angeles by what authorities called just another lone nut gunman, Sirhan Sirhan. Allegedly, Sirhand, a Christian Palestinian, was enraged at Bobby's support for Israel. The fatal bullet that had entered Bobby's head was shot from behind him, from no further than two inches away, and entered his head from behind his right ear. Now, are you ready for this, folks? Sirhan was never was never closer than three feet from Bobby, and never, never, ever behind Bobby's, always in front. There were also 14 bullet holes from a gun that carried only nine bullets. Amazing stuff. Back to Montreal. Now let's bring it all back full circle. The Warren Commission was set up to investigate the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. The commission's thesis was that Lee Harvey Oswald was nothing more than a disenfranchised youth and malcontent who had acted alone. Therefore, it was imperative that the Warren Commission get expert testimony to attest to Oswald's unstable behavior. None better than a psychiatrist that had treated Oswald when Oswald was a delinquent teenager. In Oswald's early teenage years, because he'd skipped school so much and reportedly got caught, it was decided he had to see a psychiatrist. Now, here we go, folks. Here's where it comes full circle. Now, guess who his psychiatrist was? Our previously mentioned McGill alumni, one Dr. Renatus Hartog's. It was Hartog's testimony, solicited by the Warren Commission, that nailed Oswald as what has become known as the Lone Nut Assassin. So that's a complete chapter I've just read you from JFK Assassination, from the Oval Office to D.D. Plaza, interviews with witnesses and specialists, including the last interview with Ted Sorensen, JFK's friend and speechwriter. 
Um, this is a great book, folks, because I also go into uh, Sherry Feaster's work, um, again, an historical document from the first crime scene investigator using 21st century forensics to examine the Zapruder film. And uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but you will find out that she can confirm unequivocally that there was a frontal shot. And we all know a frontal shot means at least two shooters. And by its very definition, two shooters means conspiracy. Now, there are those that are out there that say, well, you know, it could just be coincidence that there was two shooters in Dealey Plaza at the very same second shooting at the president. I really don't fall into that camp. I think once you have two shooters, and I think there was more, to be honest with you, I think we can safely, safely confirm that there was indeed a conspiracy. So this is, uh, again, it's in the book, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on the book cover associated with, uh, well, you'll see the book cover. It's got a picture of JFK and Ted Sorensen on it in the Oval Office. And uh, JFK assassination from the Oval Office to DV Plaza. Interviews with witnesses and specialists, including the last interview with Ted Sorensen. Now, I'm going to read you something from the foreword. Mark, I had asked Mark Lane, who's a good friend of mine, and you know his shows are in the www.nightfrightshow archive as well, nightfrightshow.com archive as well. I'm going to read you a little bit of the preface um, and the beautiful foreword that he wrote for me as I'm flipping pages here. Um, here we go, the introduction. And this is by Mark Lane. What a sweetheart of a guy to do this. You know, Mark Lane uh, worked with Dr. King, organized for Dr. King. He was JFK's New York City campaign manager. I don't think there's anybody this guy hasn't touched. Oprah Winfrey's had him on a show. Uh, he survived Jonestown, you know, the night of the Kool-Aid. Yeah, Mark Lane was there. And uh, he was supposed to have been killed. They held a, uh, a gun up to him, and he got out of it. He ran into the jungle, and he survived it. He said the worst part of that night for him was hearing the kids screaming and yelling that they didn't want to die. Uh, he also worked for the American uh, Indian Movement. Um, he was uh, integral in bringing around the uh, HSCA um, he wrote the uh, screenplay for uh, executive committee, uh, executive committee, executive action, which was really the first blockbuster Hollywood uh, JFK movie. He wrote Rush to Judgment, released uh, not only the book, but uh, a couple of years later, he also released that Rush to Judgment documentary, which was groundbreaking and has become the benchmark of all documentaries thereafter. Who else? Did? He was a freedom writer. He was actually on the bus when the KKK came on the bus. Can you imagine? Uh, he's done all this stuff, folks. He's absolutely amazing. And he was kind enough when I reached out to him to agree to write the foreword to my book. And I'm going to read that right now. In the days immediately following the Kennedy assassination, I felt it was imperative to investigate the murder of my president. For a year, there was not a single television or radio network show in the United States that would broadcast any information that ran counter to the government's position. And that position is that Lee Harvey Oswald killed the president and that he acted alone. There was only one way that I could get to more than one city at a time. 
I appeared on Canadian radio out of Windsor, Canada, and that's not too far, folks. Uh, just Google it. You'll, you'll see it. Across the border from Detroit. The, there was the, excuse me, that was the only way I could communicate to a large number of my own countrymen by leaving my own country and going to Canada. Brent Holland carries on that courageous work of his Canadian predecessors. It is often easy, not easy for such a genial man to carry out a pointed mission, but Brent is persistent, and because he does his research thorough, I have enjoyed listening to him, to his interviews, and I very much enjoy talking to him for those reasons. His passion and his scholarship are evident in his work, and for that, I think we all should be grateful. And that was written by Mark Lane. Now, folks, this book I'm talking about, my own book, JFK Assassination from the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza, the book was written and intended solely to inspire a new generation to question everything. Question everything, folks. You know, democracy is this precious little gem that we all have to take part in caring for. We have to do that by being proactive and demanding answers from our government on both sides of the border. We seem to have forgotten that they work for us. We don't work for them. Guess what? We the people. We put them in power to represent us, not the other way around. We're not a bunch of little ants working for a queen bee. It's the exact opposite, and this is a dynamic, I think, that both sides of the border have, have lost. So this is what this book is for, to question everything and, as a consequence, achieve more than they ever thought possible of themselves. The disclosures in this book are unsettling, and they are, folks. They really are. And it brings the assassination from the outer fringes of wild conspiracies to the heart of mainstream. And I do that because I've got the original first-person witnesses who were there. And as you all know, when you've done research in university or for anything else, the most important aspect of research is get to the original source. Don't look for third-person or fourth-person or fifth-person interpretations. Dr. McClelland is a great example of this. So is Ted Sorensen, by the way. Dr. McClelland, the doctor who worked on JFK, imagine, just imagine, if we had the access to the doctor who worked on Lincoln. Well, we have that with JFK in his own words for all time, and it's right here in the book. So the events really took place. This isn't just rhetoric. I can now confirm, and I can, the assassination of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy was a conspiracy. It was not, however, a coup d'etat. It was not, however, a coup d'etat. It was not, however, a coup d'etat, because many people think it was. So who was behind it then? And most importantly, why? Why was President Kennedy killed? This book is written to a new generation, a generation that has no emotional link to President Kennedy, Jacqueline, 
or their children, for they were not yet born. It's a generation that knows little of the assassination other than some scattered rumors about a grassy knoll somewhere. It's a generation that is chastised by their teachers for entertaining original thought. You know, folks, when I was in school, probably the same for you that are listening right now, I was taught to think to myself, to go out and find the information myself and make up my own ideas. Now, you are expected to regurgitate whatever the teacher is telling you. And if you sway off that path, don't expect to pass that course. If you come up with an original idea in a class, don't expect to pass that course. It's a dangerous situation we are in today. It's a generation that is chastised by their teachers for entertaining original thought and is forced into complacency in order to advance. It's a generation seeking answers. It's a generation seeking truth. This is a book that bridges yesterday's histories with today's generations. All the players, all the plots are brought together in a clear, concise chronology. I will show confirmation of a conspiracy in the JFK assassination at last. This is the biggest and most important admission that the Kennedy assassination, about the Kennedy assassination from the lips of JFK's closest and most trusted confident aide, Ted Sorensen. That's right, folks. There's revelations in this book that you don't want to miss. This book brings first-person, in-depth interviews and the work of over 32 researchers, many with their own books and expertise on each aspect of the assassination under one umbrella. All that information, folks, right here between the book covers. It's written in four parts. Part one, The Grassy Knoll. Part two, The Magic Bullet. Part three, The Conspiracy. The most important part, part four. Why? Let me read this quote from President Kennedy because we're going to have to start to wrap up. And it's the address to the Irish Parliament, June 1963. The problems of the world cannot possibly be solved by skeptics or cynics whose horizons are limited by the obvious realities. We need men who can dream of things that never were. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. The book is called JFK Assassination from the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza, www.nightfrightshow.com.